Well, this morning we're going to begin uh, a series in the lead up to Christmas. And I know that for many of you, this is a little bit early to beginning the, the lead up into Christmas. We're, we're in mid-November. Uh, but the way this came about was that Pastor Glenn had a brilliant idea that um, rather than the three of us all individually preach our own Christmas messages, we would deliver the story of Christmas through the eyes of those that participated in the story. And uh, so he put together his list and then he gave the list to me and then there was some that I just couldn't have left off the list. So I added to the list and then the list became quite long and, uh, and hence we have to start in November and we'll be finishing the week after Christmas. And we're going to try and stick as much as we can to um, the, the chronological order, I guess, of where the characters appear in the, in the Christmas narrative. But we've had to juggle a little bit because we wanted to end up with Jesus on Christmas morning. So if things get a little bit out of order, that's why. And this morning, I've been tasked with beginning with Gabriel, who is the first and I would argue the most poorly understood of all the characters in the Christmas narrative. And that probably has a lot to do with the fact that he is an angel. And in spite of whatever your mother may have told you, we are not angels. So we all have an image in our mind, don't we, of what an angel is. When I mention the word angel to you, what sort of image comes to your mind? Perhaps something like this? We see images of angels depicted all around us, don't we, particularly in the lead up to Christmas. We have them on our Christmas cards. We put them on top of our Christmas trees, some of us. And be honest, those of us who are mums or grandmas, which of us haven't dressed our children up to look like that with little wings and a little halo? I know I enforced this on Zoe at least once um, and we'll probably do it again to Rain and Shyla. We also wear angel necklaces and angel earrings and for those of you that are that way inclined, Apparently, angels are number three on the list of most popular tattoos. And I guess, if we're honest, these are the types of images that we think of when we think about angels. We think halos, we think wings, we think feminine, often childlike, naked or scantily clad, robed in white, fun biblical fact. Nowhere in the Bible are angels described anything like that. Now, I'm sure that many of you would also have heard many stories about angels and when you go online to start researching a topic about angels, you are bombarded with a whole lot of out there stuff. And in fact, I said to my husband, oh, there's just so much junk out there about angels, it's hard to find you know, any 
useful resources. And he said, well, we're paying for you to be at that college. Go and look in the college library. <laughs> There's got to be something there. So I went to the college library. There was a shelf about this big, full of stuff on angels, and I reckon about that much of it was equally as rubbishy as what was on the internet. Um, but anyway, you've probably all heard stories about angels. And um, I'm going to tell you a couple, a couple that I believe are genuine. Um, one of them is the story of Jerry. And Jerry was a soldier, a young soldier. And this story occurred in the 1960s. And he was a patient at the Repat Hospital in South Australia. And he'd been admitted because he had very severe pneumonia and pleurisy. And he was in a really bad way. And so were all the other soldiers in the hospital around him. And it was, it was that sort of place where every night someone was dying, and you knew when someone was dying because they put the screens around them. And one night, it was Jerry's turn, and he woke to find that the screens had been put around his bed, and that there were four doctors and a nurse standing at the foot of his bed. And one of the doctors was shaking his head. Jerry then sort of fell asleep again. But he woke because someone was stroking his hand and he could feel an indentation on the bed, that someone was sitting on the bed. And he describes what he saw as this. There, he said, was the most beautiful creature that I have ever seen. Long blonde tresses, eyes like Salome's sapphires, a robe which seemed to have been spun from the purest white cotton, interwoven with silver threads and pulsating as if it were with neon light. Around the waist was a golden girdle. He said this person smiled and nodded and patted him on the hand as if to say things would be okay. He then pinched himself hard to make sure that he wasn't dreaming and then slipped back into unconsciousness. Jerry survived and he says of that encounter, some years later as he reflects on it, he said, if that had been of my imagination, he said, that being would have had wings. He said, this one had no wings. He said, I was a young soldier then and I didn't concern myself with spirit beings, but now I'm convinced that what I saw was an angel. I'd pinched myself hard and I know that it was real. And he says he hopes his story may be of comfort to others. Now, perhaps the best known story of angels assisting humans, and it's probably one that you've heard before outside of the biblical record, is that of a missionary couple known as the Patons. And they were serving in what we now know as Vanuatu, it was then called New Hebrides. And it was not a touristy place back then. The place was full of hostile tribes who didn't like Christians coming to um, spread the word amongst them. And on one particular night, these hostile tribes had surrounded the mission headquarters where the patents were stationed, and they were intent on burning them out and killing them. And there was nothing for it but for the couple to pray. They couldn't do anything else, so they spent the night in prayer, in prayer calling out to God to deliver them from these natives. They were amazed the next morning when they peered out of their 
compound to find that the place was empty. All of the, the hostile tribesmen had mysteriously vanished um, for no apparent reason. Sometime later, about a year later, the chief of the tribe actually came to Christ. And this gave the patents an opportunity that they had been to find out something that they'd been wondering about for a long time. And so as they got to know this chief, they eventually asked him, what was it that caused you all to leave on that particular night? Why didn't you burn us down and, and kill us? And the surprised chief looked at them and he said, but, but who were all those men with you? And the patent said, there were no men with us. It was just me and my wife praying. And the chief said, no, no, there were hundreds of men and they were all dressed in dazzling um, robes and they all had swords drawn and they were huge men. And it was only then that this missionary couple realised that God had sent a legion of angels to protect them on that particular night in their hour of need. Now there are many, many such stories. Um, there's stories of, of two men in white running across a field to lift a tractor off a, a trapped farmer and the two men in white mysteriously disappear just as, as quickly as they appeared once the job was done. There's stories of angels breaking people's falls, of angels um, holding people's hands while they've been trapped in car accidents, um, and of them appearing regularly in the night to distressed children to frighten, uh, to, to, to calm them in their fear. But as wonderful of, as all of these stories might be, I think Billy Graham really has the last word on some of these encounters. And he says, I do not believe in angels because someone has told me about a dramatic vision of an angel, impressive as some of these stories might be. He says, I don't believe in angels because UFOs are astonishingly angel-like in some of the reported sightings. I don't believe in angels because experts are now making the realm of the spirit world seem more and more plausible. I don't believe in angels, he says, because of the worldwide emphasis on Satan and the demonic. I don't believe in angels because I've ever seen one, because I haven't. I believe in angels, says Billy, because the Bible says there are angels and I believe the Bible to be the true word of God. So when we think about angels, it's to the Bible that we need to go um, to see what the Bible has to say about angels and the Bible has plenty to say about angels. The Bible teaches us that we're not alone in this world. Of course, God has sent the Holy Spirit to be with us, but we also have angels. Um, there are over 300 biblical references to angels, and these are spread across the Old Testament and the New Testament. And they teach us that angels were created by God, and they were present when God created the earth. We're told that there are multitudes of angels. In Deuteronomy, we're told tens of thousands of angels were with God on Sinai when God gave the law to Moses. David records for us in the Psalms that the chariots of God 
are 20,000 in number, thousands upon thousands, and the Lord is among them. Hebrews speaks of thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly and in Revelation and John. John sees 10,000 times 10,000 angels encircling the throne of God. We also know from the biblical record that angels experience emotion. They are in awe of God and they rejoice um, when a sinner repents and turns to God. Angels are not God's robots sent out to do what he commands. They are also free to choose to obey and serve God or to disobey their creator. And I think with all of this evidence, there can be very little doubt that angels are important. And so it should be from these biblical references that we build our picture of what angels look like and what it is that they do. So what exactly do they look like? Well, it's probably easier to answer the question in the opposite. What don't they look like? From the Bible, we know that they are not effeminate looking. They don't resemble beautiful women or young toddlers or children. And they do not walk beneath a halo unfortunately. We know from the biblical record that angels do not possess physical bodies. They are spirit beings, although they can take on the form of a human body to carry out whatever task it is that they've been assigned. For example, they appeared to both Abraham and Lot in Genesis. Um, and both of these men believed that they were just talking with ordinary human beings. Now, with the exception of those that fell with Lucifer, angels have been untouched by sin. So that means they don't get sick and they never die. Angels also don't marry. And we know that because Jesus told us that when we're in heaven, we won't marry or be given in marriage. We will be instead like the angels. Angels, when they appear, are often invisible to humans. And we know that from the story of Balaam and his donkey, where the angel of the Lord stood in front of him with the sword drawn three times, and the donkey either veered off the road or sat down beneath its master. But Balaam had no idea what was going on. He couldn't see anything. But when they appear, they are often so gloriously beautiful that they amaze or even terrify those that see them. If you remember the encounter um, between the two Marys and the angel at the tomb of our Lord, the angel is described as bright as lightning and his clothes as white as snow, which is probably where we get the idea of the white robes from. The guards that saw this angel were reported as being so deathly afraid of him that they shook. And both Daniel and John give amazing descriptions of their encounters with angels. Some of what they describe includes a body like Beryl, not Beryl McKinnon, a face like lightning, eyes like flaming torches, arms and legs like polished bronze. That's Daniel's description. And from John, a rainbow over his head 
a face like the sun, legs like columns of fire. They're absolutely amazing descriptions and still others are beyond even our wildest imagination. Ezekiel describes the cherubim as being full of eyes with four faces and encompassed by wheels within wheels. Now that's a long way from our description of cherubim as cute, podgy toddlers wearing not much clothing. There's nothing in scripture either to support the commonly held belief that all angels have wings and can fly. Certainly some of the angelic beings do. The seraphim described in Isaiah had wings, but they had six wings. Two to cover their faces, two to cover their feet, and with two of them they flew. Ezekiel's cherubim also flutter their wings in anticipation of what's to come. But aside from these descriptions in the biblical account of angels having wings are just lacking. They're not there. So what do the angels do? I think we're stuck. <laughs> we are stuck. You might have to reboot. I'll push on. Angels, of course, are perhaps known for their ministry to humans, and some of the biblical records to that include Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, Daniel in the lion's den, when Elijah was on the run, and of course Jesus when he was tempted in the desert. But there's plenty of modern-day accounts, like the ones I've already mentioned. Um, but while angels are called upon by God to minister to humans, that is not the extent of their role. They encouraged the early followers of Jesus to begin their ministry. They facilitated meetings between believers and non-believers. They were instrumental in the release of Paul and others from prison. And they are God's agents in judgment. So you remember the angel who destroyed the Assyrian army back in the book of Kings, the angel of death, who destroyed the firstborn in Egypt and the angel that king killed King Herod for not giving glory to God. Angels are also well known for their worship around the throne of God as described in the visions of Isaiah and John and they'll have a role at the end of the world because it's the angels that will separate the evil from those that have God's approval and we're told that it's the angels that will administer the penalty of unforgiven sin, that being to be cast into the furnace of fire. That comes from Matthew. But above all, there is another important um, role for angels, and we have a clue in, in the actual word itself. So the word angel comes from the Greek, angelos, which means messenger. So the angels act as God's messenger. That's their primary role, and indeed it is the role of Gabriel, and that hence the title for today, God's Messenger. Now, most of you probably know two much-loved passages from the book of Luke, which relate to Gabriel and the Christmas narrative, uh, where he speaks to the ageing priest, Zechariah, announcing that he will father John, who will be the forerunner for Christ, and then he speaks to Mary, announcing the news of the virgin birth. 
This morning, we're going to rewind about 500 years from there to the time of Daniel, because that's where we first encounter Gabriel in the scriptures, and that's where we first hear his amazing message concerning the Messiah. And also, because if I start there, I'm pretty sure that I won't step on Pastor Glenn or Pastor Bruce's territory when they speak about Elizabeth and Zachariah and John and Mary and Joseph. So the setting for the passage in Daniel 9 that we're going to get to in a moment is that Daniel, a man with a real heart for prayer and for the scriptures, has been reading the words of the prophet Jeremiah. And he's discovered that Jerusalem will be desolate for 70 years. Now, by this time, Daniel was an old man and he recognised that the 70 years must be nearing completion or completed. And with this realisation, Daniel turns to God for help and the first half of Daniel chapter 9 is taken up with the most beautiful prayer of Daniel. It's a prayer of adoration. It's a prayer of exaltation. It's a plea for God to show compassion um, and it's a prayer um, seeking forgiveness for the nation. We're told that Daniel prayed and he pleaded and he fasted and he did it all wearing sackcloth and ashes, symbols of his sincere grief and repentance on behalf of the people. So here we find Daniel in this very genuine outward posture of humility and we pick up our reading this morning towards the end of his heartfelt prayer. So if you've got your Bibles, turn to Daniel. Chapter 9, and we're going to start from verse 17. And it's up on the screen for those that want to follow. Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, Lord, look with favour on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, our God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. For your sake, my God, do not delay, because your city and your people bear, mine, bear your name. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, a word went out, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy-sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Know and understand this. From the time the word goes out, to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes. There will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. 
After the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and he will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary and the end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering and at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. It's a pretty awesome message that the angel delivered to Daniel. And people are still arguing over it today. What does this all mean? There are many, many interpretations and it's probably really dangerous for me to, you know, so early on in my career up here to go straight into prophecy. But this is a great passage and it has a great message um, for us today. One of the greatest things in that passage is the little bit that says, while I was still in prayer. Daniel hadn't even finished his prayer and God was sending out the answer already. How does he send it? We're told he sends an angel in swift flight. Why does he send him? He sends him with a response. Daniel asked a question, the angel sent with a response. While he was still in prayer, God was already sending a response via his messenger, Gabriel. Now, Gabriel means in Hebrew, the mighty one of God. And what little else we know of Gabriel comes from this passage, from the passage that precedes it in chapter 8, which is Gabriel's first encounter with Daniel, and from the two passages in Luke where Gabriel encounters Zechariah and then Mary. And so the sum total of what we know about Gabriel is up here. We know he's an angel. We're told that in Luke. He tells those that he visits in Luke that he's an angel. We know that he can fly because it says in Daniel that he came in swift flight, but there's still no mention of wings there. So how he flew, or whether it just means he came really quickly, who knows? We know that he stands in the presence of God. He tells Zechariah that I, Gabriel, stand in the presence of God. And we know that he looked like a man. Daniel told us he, the one who was like a man. But we also know that he was somehow terrifying. Daniel says in chapter 8, when he came, I was terrified and I immediately knelt down. And in Luke, we're told that when Gabriel appeared beside the altar, Zechariah was troubled and overcome with fear. And we know that Gabriel told Mary, do not be afraid, you have found favour with God. So whether there was something about the way he looked that was terrifying or whether it was just the fact that they were standing in front of a messenger from God that gave them the sort of jelly leg syndrome, I, I don't know. We also know that Gabriel's messages primarily concern the Messiah. That was what he was sent to deliver. And this response that Daniel received from God to his prayers must have just completely blown his mind. In fact, everyone that came in contact with Gabriel really must have had their, their minds blown. 
So what does it all mean? Well, we need to remember that Daniel had been reading the prophet Jeremiah and specifically he'd been reading the part that we know as chapter 25 that deals with the destruction and the desolation of Jerusalem. 70 years of, just of desolation. Now whilst Jeremiah says that this punishment related to their failure to heed the prophet's warnings and their turning to other gods and idol worship, it doesn't specifically explain the 70 years. Why 70? And for that, we need to turn to Chronicles to find some clues. So in Chronicles, we read that the land enjoyed its Sabbath rests all the time of its desolation it rested until the 70 years were completed in fulfilment of the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. So this 70 years had to do with Sabbath rests. So Israel had obviously not been doing something that they'd been commanded to do with regard to the Sabbath years for the land. And if you follow the thread further back to Leviticus, where the law is laid out for the people, you see that they are commanded for six years to sow their fields. For six years they can work the fields and they can reap the crop. But every seventh year the land was to be rested and they weren't to sow or work the fields. And it was that, amongst many other things, that Israel had ignored. So for many, many years, they'd continued to work the land, they hadn't rested the land, and now God was saying, for all of those Sabbaths that you missed, I'm going to enforce a rest on the land. And that was the 70 years that Jeremiah spoke about. And it's towards the end of that 70 years of desolation that we find Daniel deep in prayer, crying out to God for his people. Now, Gabriel's prophecy to Daniel begins with 77s are decreed upon your people and upon your holy city. And scholars continue to debate what that means to this day. And what I'm going to give you today is what is the most widely accepted explanation of this prophecy and the one which, to me, makes the most perfect sense. Having said that, I don't want us to get too hung up on the detail because today is about big picture. It's about the big picture of where Christmas fits in to God's plan. But there are a couple of keys in that first sentence that I think are fundamental to unlocking the whole rest of the prophecy. And if you miss them, nothing else makes much sense. So we'll start with the numbers first. Daniel was told there would be 77s. So how do we interpret that? Is this symbolic or is it literal? So we have a look at the symbolism first. Number 70 has a very sacred meaning in the Bible. It's the product of two numbers which have very significant symbolic biblical meaning. Seven represents perfection. And when we think of seven, the most obvious application of that we think of is creation, the perfection of creation. And ten represents completeness in God's law. 
And so we think of the Ten Commandments. And so I'm convinced that in expressing the time frame in this way, 77s, rather than just saying whatever the total number of years is, there's more than just a little bit of a hint of symbolism here. I'm convinced that God is saying, in my perfect, complete timing, it will all be done. In terms of literal interpretations, many English versions of the Bible have translated this phrase to read 70 weeks. And this is not a very accurate translation and it's led to a lot of confusion over the years. We know and understand the Hebrew word for weeks because of the Jewish observance of their festival of weeks, which they call Shavuot. Here, though, the Hebrew word used is not Shavuot, it is Shavum, which means simply sevens. It can be seven of anything, and the context determines what the seven is. And here, Daniel's been thinking in terms of years, so it's 70 years. So this seven part of it talks about years, weeks of years. Now, Daniel assumed that Jeremiah from Jeremiah that the captivity of Israel would end after the 70 years and that the kingdom would be established. And so here Gabriel is correcting that assumption and he's using a play on these Hebrew words to point out that it's not 70 years, but 77s of years, which is a total of 490 years. And the other important point in our understanding of this prophecy is that the 77s are decreed to your people and upon your holy city. And he's talking to Daniel. So Daniel's people, the Jews, and Daniel's holy city was Jerusalem. So this is not a prophecy specifically about us. And if we attempt to read it any other way, we're trying to force it to be something that it is not. Now, the details of the prophecy are given a little bit further on. In verse 25, Gabriel says, Know and understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. So he's breaking it down a bit for him. So from the time the word goes out. So it's important for us to know when the time was that the word went out, if we're going to look at what's happened and what hasn't happened. And in this respect, I think God has gone to great effort to make it easy for those that want to know to find out when this word went out. So there are four potential decrees that went out that talked about rebuilding. And they're all in the Bible. They're easy to find. The first one there was from... Cyrus, who was the king of Persia, you can find this one in Nehemiah, but that decree relates only to the rebuilding of the temple, not to the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And we're told in this verse that it relates to the rebuilding of Jerusalem. So that one's out. There's a second decree was from Darius I, and that decree really just confirmed the one that went before it, so it also refers only to the temple, so that one's out. There's a third um, decree from King 
Artaxerxes, and it was given in his seventh year, and it was given to Ezra. And when you read the details of that decree, it mostly concerns gifts to be taken for the temple, sacrifices, and it talks about administration, managing the people and, and teaching. It doesn't talk about rebuilding the whole city. So that one also is out. We're left with this final one, and that is the only one which specifically talks about the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem. And that's the one that uh, Pastor Glenn has been preaching us through in the book of Nehemiah. We also read in Nehemiah, in the chapter 2, which deals specifically with that decree, that this decree was issued in the month of Nisan. And that was in the 20th year of the reign of Artaxerxes in the year 445 BC. And that's very significant that the month is given. And it's the only one of those decrees for which the month is specifically given in the biblical record. I think it's also no coincidence that there was a historian, a very well-known historian, Herodotus, who is actually called the father of history. And he was a contemporary of King Artaxerxes. And he and the other historian of the time, Thucydides, went to great pains to record the works of this king. So we have it all very well recorded, all the dates that go with this particular decree. So this is an attempt uh, at summarising things up here. So here we've got those Sabbath years when Israel didn't allow the land to rest. And so as a result, there is a 70 years of desolation that Jeremiah spoke of. And then here we have the command to rebuild given in Nisan. And then here we have Daniel's weeks of years. And specifically that's broken down into seven weeks of years, being 49 years to rebuild Jerusalem. And then the remainder here... And if we follow this timeline forward and we allow for a four-year error, which there is um, in the dating of the birth of Christ. I can't go into why there is, but there is. And if we use a 360-day calendar, which the ancients used instead of the 365-day calendar, we will find that the total, oh, the total of these years here brings us right here to the very day in the very month of Nisan when Jesus rode in to Jerusalem on a donkey. And I think that just speaks volumes. We serve a God who can be depended upon to keep his promises. We serve a God who has a plan. And Christmas was no accident in that plan. Um, it was all laid out and it was given through the prophets nearly 500 years earlier. Now Gabriel more appearances in the biblical record. He appears, as we've said, to Zechariah to announce that he would father John who would bring many people in Israel back to the Lord their God and he would go ahead of the Lord with the spirit and power that Elijah did. And he appears also to Mary 
to announce the virgin birth of Jesus, who would be king of Jacob's people forever and whose kingdom would never end. Now, both of these are recorded in the book of Luke. Both of them are well known, and so I'm not going to spend really any time on them today because Pastors Glenn and Bruce will, will deal with these in more detail as we get closer. We're starting out here today and then we'll get closer as we head towards Christmas. Um, there's only one observation I wanted to make and that was one that just jumped out at me from the pages as I compared some of these passages. In each instance, there was something about the character of the recipient of the message. Perhaps their closeness to God that was noticed by Gabriel. In Daniel's case, he was said to be highly esteemed. Uh, Zechariah was told that God had heard his prayer. He was clearly a man of prayer. And to Mary, she had somehow found favour with God. And I think this says to us that God gives insight to those who stay close to him. These were three people who were very close to God and great insight was given to them. So we saw earlier that there would be seven sevens and then 62 sevens being a total of 483 years from the command to rebuild until the anointed one. And we know that all of those things that were spoken of have come to pass. We have them recorded for us. But there's still one more week of years. What of that last seven years, the 70th week of years? Is it past or is it still yet to come? And to start to answer that question, we have to go back again and look at what Gabriel told Daniel. What was the purpose of this time? Well, the purpose was to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up or bring an end to vision and prophecy, make them complete, and to anoint the most holy place. We also have to remember that this was not a prophecy given to us. It was given to Daniel about the Jews. So have all of these things come to pass for the Jewish people? And the answer, I believe, is a resounding no. Um, the Jews still refuse to accept atonement for their iniquity. Everlasting righteousness has not yet come to the earth and the most holy place has not yet been anointed. So we have to assume that there is some sort of gap in this prophecy. And for some of us that's kind of unnerving because we like things to just plod on as they're written. Um, but this isn't uncommon in prophetic literature. In fact, it's quite common. And it has to do with perspective. So if you view this from the eyes of the prophet to whom all of this information is being given, it's as though you're looking at a series of mountains all lined up, one behind the other. So you're looking from that perspective, one behind the other. But then they look, it looks orderly. They're all just falling into place, one behind the other. But if you turn it round and you look from another perspective, perhaps God's perspective, you start to see what's between the mountains. And in some cases, there's quite long valleys 
that aren't visible when you're looking straight down the line. So we might picture this gap in prophecy something like that. Um, and we're living in that gap. That's where we are. That's the current age, the age of the church. And contrary to what many of us might believe about Christmas, Christmas is not God's emergency plan that he put in place when everything else failed. I better send Jesus down. It's part of a huge, much bigger picture. The Old Testament writings were completed about 450 years before the birth of Christ and they contain over 300 different prophecies, all of which were fulfilled in the birth, the life, the death and the resurrection of Christ. Just in that tiny little bit that's pictured on that time frame there, that tiny little piece of red, 300 prophecies, all of them came to pass. And the mathematics of all that is mind-boggling. Mathematicians predict that the chance of one person fulfilling just eight, just eight out of the 300 prophecies is one in a hundred million billion. That's a hundred million billion. That's a number with 17 zeros on it. The chance of one person fulfilling 48 of those prophecies is one chance in 10 to the 157 power. And if anyone can tell me what that number is called, well done, because I thought about it and my head hurt too much, so I just wrote 1 to the 157 power. The chance of someone being able to fulfill all 300 of those prophecies, that's Jesus. That Only Jesus can do that. And that is the great message of Gabriel, that God is in control. God knows exactly what he was doing. He knew what he was doing way back at creation. He knew what he was doing and Gabriel to reveal this great message to Daniel. He still knew what he was doing 400 years later when he sent Gabriel again to Mary and Zechariah to announce the next stage of the plan. And we can be confident that no matter what is happening in our lives, no matter what sort of change we're dealing with, no matter what sort of problems we're facing, God still is in control and he still knows what he's doing and he'll still know, he'll, he will still know what he's doing next week and the week after and the week after that. Why would anyone want to go it their own way or put anyone or anyone else, anything else, in control of their lives? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are in control. We thank you that you have a purpose, that you had a plan, and we thank you that you sent Jesus to uh, fulfill that plan and purpose for us. Lord God, we thank you for this prophecy. We thank you for the richness in your word. And Lord, we do pray for, for all those who are yet to, yet to hear, yet to seek and yet to understand this Christmas. Lord, we pray that they would, there would be a real turning to you this Christmas, a real 
growing in understanding, Lord, that you are the only one who is in control of this world. We bless you, Lord. Amen.